It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine and destroy U.S. national security. Hello, everyone. This is Colonel Rhett John, Colonel Rhett John on the America Out Loud News Network, the America Out Loud News Network on the National Security Hour. And welcome to tonight's show. Uh, Excited to have a great guest. Uh, His name is Dave Walsh, and I got to know Dave uh, just uh, being on War Room uh, and Liberty University and places like that, and uh, Dave is an expert on energy, so uh, we're going to have a great discussion on energy. Dave is retired uh, uh, president of North American Operations for Mitsubishi Power Systems, so Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here and a privilege. All righty. Well, thank you so much. Well, we, we had uh, in the segments to, uh, tonight uh, several things to talk about. The first thing I wanted to talk about was the uh, Biden's destruction of the energy sector and this mythology of wind and solar. So, uh, Dave, why don't you yeah, be kind of conversational, but why don't you go? Uh, I think, you know, we're headed on this one. What do you what do you have to say about that? Yeah, well, he, I mean, he's doubled down on the worst of times in the uh, Obama administration with their their war on coal, which was successfully prosecuted through about eight, we called them in the industry, alphabet soup regulations, one of which was struck down by SCOTUS last year, fortunately, the clean power plant. Um, just a, a, a exponential continuance of, of those processes geared at shuttering any use of fossil fuel for electric power generation going forward. And of course, in the transportation sector with this argued transition to an all EV fleet uh, by resale by the, you know, the forties and then by the fifties, according to them and what they're uh, profit, profiting, profiting the, the end of, of uh, gas fired vehicles, which is all rather amazing is get into okay, what specifically they've done. Um, in the power generation sector, his his um, EPA announced a plan to basically convert all combined cycle plants over a couple hundred megawatts. Those are gas turbine run plants with the exhaust recycling into a steam turbine for 50% more energy. That's the state of the art technology used for 39% of U.S. generation. That those all be converted either to hydrogen fuel or or carbon capture by 2035. And the same with all coal plants over several hundred megawatts, that they all be uh, transitioned to carbon capture or shut down. And just to give you an idea. Just just for explain my my own education, when they say carbon capture, I mean, it sounds very ideological, but what what does that mean physically in the process? It's a gargantuan uh, civil engineering project involving taking the carbon discharge out of the effluent, the, the, the smoke, the, the, if you will, transitioning it, injecting it into an aquifer that can be, you know, 25, 30, 40 miles from a power plant, because, you know, most power plants aren't built on top of a geologic cave or cavern structure. You've got to then find one. Inject this material into a piping system. Again, it could be 25, 30 miles, and then into a, an existing cave or aquifer below the surface of the geologic surface 
and, and you're t- typically looking to do this at a cost per power plant of something like three or four billion each. Uh, it's been tried in the U.S. at four sites. My company was involved in two of them. The big one in Houston was Petronova, NRG Petronova. There was one in Alabama, Southern Company Plant Berry, um, and two other efforts, one in Canada, one in the U.S. at carbon capture. Well, it, 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 it's, it's feasible, but the, the, the cost of it is so, so exorbitant. And you're talking a power plant that might cost a billion to build, a thousand megawatt advanced, super advanced, very clean, by the way, gas-fired combined cycle plant. To bolt this on can be from three to four billion more dollars, depending on the distance from that given plant to a, a, an aquifer or cave. At, at, you know, again, adding four times the initial cost of the plant. So this has been tried so, so, here. So that, that, that three to five billion, of course, you, you, you capture that back in a year or two, right, on the return on investment? Oh, no. <laughs> That's a never. Never. <laughs> never. Never. Oh, unless, unless you've got the, the NRG Petronova experiment with this did involve reuse of carbon for injection for oil recovery enhancement. So it had some beneficial use, but by and large, carbon capture is simply about injecting it into the ground and storing it uh, f- forever, uh, hoping it stays, you know, airtight in that in that aquifer. But not, no, no reuse, generally speaking, and no return on investment except the sunk cost of, you know, the argument of of removing CO two from the environment. Th- this alone, I mean, this uh, proposed. A regulation by the EPA would uh, would really bring American electric power to absolutely to its knees, and and curiously, in the middle of all this promoting of, of the transition to electric vehicles, which is going to take from most estimates from sixty to eighty percent more electricity will need to be generated to facilitate one hundred percent conversion to EVs in the U.S., and then all of the transition from gas to home heating, electric heating. At, at home in the the upper Midwest in the Northeast, which are dominantly gas heating and oil heating home and commercial building environments, transitioning those to electric, which they want to do, you're you're talking about way more than doubling the capacity necessary of generation in this country, while these guys are taking strident efforts at the same time to actually diminish electricity supply, and then getting off the carbon capture. Uh, a thing with the combined cycle and coal plants. The other is simply the continuance of the massive incentives on wind and solar and battery storage that will continue to push investment into intermittent, very, very part-time energy production devices. Again, solar nationally is a 20% of the day thing in most markets in the U.S., 80% of the time doesn't provide enough energy to produce electricity. Wind on land is a 63% to 65% of the time non-operational thing due to the wind simply not blowing hard enough to generate electricity. Offshore, a little better. It's non-operational offshore about 58% of the time. But, but when you take that into effect on the cost, the cost profile of those resources, given that they're intermittent and part-time, You've got costs that are if, uh, onshore wind and solar 4.5 times more than combined cycle gas-fired power. Offshore wind is about 10 times more capex than building a conventional combined cycle plant, you know, again, to run with the natural gas that we are completely blessed with a tremendous supply of in this country. So, the, the, I mean, the pushing these, pushing these agenda, part-time intermittent resources that are nature-based, 
is a, a, a tremendous tragedy to the need to continue, you know, continue to electrify the country, even in normal circumstances. So we're, we're looking at, at the strategies and implementation by the administration that are counterintuitive to having plus energy in the country. They're actually about having less of it. So and, and at an enormous cost to ratepayers for electricity. What, what, what do you think? Do they have anybody with engineering degrees or math degrees uh, in in this uh, the administration, I mean, this seems to be just crazy what they're doing. But uh, I mean, are they just not? Or is this just sheer ideology? Or are they just throwing engineering? Uh, excuse me, the expression to the wind. I mean, what is going through their head on this? No, I think at least in in the EPA, in the DOE, uh, you've got four levels down, complete ideologues who are not engineers, often are attorneys, who really have no clue what the reality of producing electricity, uh, driving transportation vehicles, and running industry particularly, which is another tragedy that's visited by these kinds of processes that cost so much money, are the inability of the nation to have industry in it that's competitive, from steelmaking to aluminum smelting to specialty steelmaking to foundries to petrochemical plants, chemical plants, cement plants, all the stuff, paper mills, and, and even server centers that take enormous amounts of electricity to run. We, we need more of it, more abundance of it at lower cost, and these strategies are all about less of it at, at far higher cost. Okay. Is there a place for wind and solar in the overall energy strategy of America? Does it have a place at all? Yeah, sure. It has... Uh, Let's say, you know, let's say perhaps uh, 10 to 12 percent of the total portfolio mix Because generally here. Here's how this works and how it was set up by GE Westinghouse, the, the, the Admiral Rickover years ago. The, the theory of electrification was, OK, the nighttime continuous duty minimum daily load that in most markets, whether MISO, PJM, uh, CERC, are similar at nighttime load is about 60 to 65% of daytime load. Meaning even at midnight, one in the morning, you need 60 to 65% of your generation resources running to keep industry open at night. And when it's cold and warm from our air conditioning running and heat running. So that would be the basis for, okay, you, you have stuff running then in that window that is stuff, if you will, coal plants and nuclear plants that run all of the time that are designed to run all of the time. You build your energy system for electricity based on that. Okay, two thirds of your assets need to be running all the time because even in the in the depths of nighttime, you've got still you know 60 to 65% need for electricity. Then as the day builds up in the early morning, you can have a peak uh, up through the middle of the day. Uh, some of the markets differ. The Kaiso market, California is famous for its duck curve. Late in the day, the peak is reached, but Generally, then, okay, so midday, you can have, you know, stack on more intermediate duty assets that run every day, maybe up to seven or eight hours a day, beginning early in the morning up through early evening, and, and have, you know, the, the next tranche of resource needs met. On top of that, for in, in the summer, for example, or down here in Florida, in Texas, in the winter, when you have peaks, peak needs for electricity, then you have gas turbines in simple cycle 
uh, generally or reciprocating engines to meet the absolute peak of the day. These used to be called peak shaving machines or technology that might be called into duty a couple hours a day at the most in the hottest and coldest of times to, to peak shave or meet the peak load needs of an electrical system. But it, the system was kind of built that way. And, and now we're, we're just standing that on its head by insisting that really all that's being built now, uh, study the integrated resource plans for all most U.S. utilities, is now wind and solar. So that, that's becoming more and more the basis of the energy system, which is just completely flipped around what it should be. But no, to, to your direct question, though, yeah, you, you can have... You know, logically have 10 to 12% of the system load be met by renewables, which would typically like solar plan on it being around between 10 and three in the afternoon. And that small five hour window, you know, can provide some peaking capacity in the hottest of times. And, you know, in, not yet, but maybe someday even beat gas and cost for that short time period. So you'd have it, it would have its time and place. There were small applications like parking lots and, small load uses that that where energy can be stored effectively sure it has its place but not not a dominant place not half of the system not all of the system i mean it really the, the realistic theoretical limit of wind and solar even with battery storage is probably uh, and it would be completely unaffordable to do this to say 25 to 30 percent of the total system power emanating from those resources would be the absolute theoretical maximum because of the, the boundary conditions of nature, that they simply don't operate all the time. In fact, they operate a decided minority of the time. So you're, you're then, if not stuck with, but you've got to have 70% to 75% of your system based then on something else that runs full time, such as natural gas and coal and nuclear. Hmm. Well, two, two questions here. Uh, let's stay, let's take the first one. Uh, I wanted to ask about where do you think we are on electric vehicles, and then the next one, uh, utilities. And you and I had talked before about Pacific Gas and Electric, but let's first of all electric vehicles. Where are we at on this trajectory? Because I'm starting to hear more and more pushback that just it just doesn't make any sense, and that. Uh, the companies are losing money and, and, and the consumers is not buying electric vehicles. Where are we on this trajectory? Well, that's, I mean, if you look at the Ford and GM's results on, on this technology, they're losing a great deal of money trying to absorb it and transition to a bigger percentage. You know, again, in their both cases have announced wanting to have a majority percent of their vehicles be EVs. Um, on, on a cost basis, they're not they're not competitive with the Chinese. They're not competitive with Tesla. Um, but, but most importantly, they're not they're not seeing the demand. I mean, demand for these, you know, in in the average price point of, you know, forty five to if you will seventy five grand a pop, using plain language here, um, plus the liability inherited to have a new battery within two hundred thousand miles at another twenty five to thirty grand. The average person at an average U.S. household income of you know roughly seventy grand is not voting with their feet to run and get these. In fact, it's the opposite. You've got a lot of folks who've had them migrating off of them because of the continued difficulty to go get a charge conveniently and to have enough energy in a battery to last long enough to make it not be a nuisance to be chronically concerned with being out of power. 
So there, I mean, mainly on a cost basis, there, it, it, it's not working. Um, it's an absurdity, an obscenity for the administration to be pushing a buying preference that people must begin to like by by executive fiat, by by royal decree, must want an electric vehicle. I mean, it, it should, in its best case, be an option that if someone wants one of these, absolutely, there should be a way to get one, and there always would be a way to get one, and they've been out for a long time, but not be not be boxed into the requirement to to have one. And that, and, but because of the, the cost structure and the pricing of them, that that's the big the pushback that's causing the the headwinds for the companies involved in this, at begging for more incentives. By the way, um, that the economic model for most citizens isn't working out as you'd expect it not to work out. Wow, wow, yeah. And we just, uh, I just made a decision. We just bought a new fifteen hundred level truck. I'm not going to say which company, and we did it all gas. Uh, no, not, not, not even the hybrid. Um, okay. We got about a minute left here. Um, the model utility, my uncle retired out of PG and E, which I think at one times was kind of the model utility, but why does PGA PG and E is a, is a shambles as it's, and why do all these utilities go for this silliness when they, when they know it's patently absurd and makes no economic sense? What's going on with the utilities? Well, you have uh, not to dwell on PG&E. It was, it's really run by the Public Service Commission in California, which has been a disaster for 40 years. There, there are good people in PG&E that do understand engineering deeply, know everything we talk about, but they've been they've been punished by, you know, repeated state governments that have been left or heavily left oriented, driving them out of electrification for years. California has been a, a poster child for you know, what you wind up with uh, chasing away coal, which they did 30 years ago, chasing away nuclear, which they've been all over doing, except up till very recently, Newsom shockingly making decision to fund keeping Diablo Canyon open, which is an ama- amazing turnabout for the left to be doing that, but also against gas fire technology and combined cycle plants. The net result of this, PG&E and Southern Cal Edison collectively, for the state, have had to be an importer now. 35% of the electricity in California is imported. They can't produce it there because they're not allowed to use nuclear, gas, or coal. So with that said, and the limitations we talked about on renewables that they're boxed into, they've got a massive shortage of power. So the big suppliers are Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, Washington, Oregon with hydro, Mm -hmm. uh, in wheeling power into uh, California on a purchase basis at at prices that the public service commission can't control at all. Those prices are up to Portland general electric. They're up to, uh, uh, APS, Arizona public service, Nevada power decide what the price is, what they sell into California. So that the state winds up being the third highest electricity cost market in the country. That's great. And and with a massive shortage of it. Wow. The the rest of the utilities deserve more discussion. Maybe we can spend a few more minutes on that. What's happening. Okay, well, we're going to take a break on on this uh, segment, but this is absolutely fascinating. And, and again, this is Colonel Rhett John uh, with guest Dave Walsh on the National Security Hour. Thank you. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long haul effects of the toxic spike protein. 
Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. The Natural Colon Cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with Oxy Powder. It's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas, bloating, and occasional constipation. There's a reason why Oxy Powder is our number one seller. It worked. Go to AmericaOutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is Colonel Rhett John on the National Security Hour, the National Security Hour on America Out Loud News Network. And my special guest is Dave Walsh, uh, who uh, is really just a wonderful, wonderful expert on energy. And, and uh, hey, energy policy is national security policy. It's all important. And that's why I just uh, just enjoy talking to Dave about this because uh, he really knows knows his stuff So uh, on, on this. So we were going to jump into nuclear and the role of nuclear in the modern uh, power portfolio. But before that, we're going to spend a few more minutes kind of and just kind of rounding out the discussion on utilities and the role of utilities. So, so Dave, uh, we we're talking about how the utilities have been somewhat browbeat by uh, by the uh, regulators and states and federal governments. So, go go ahead. Well, in, in in the old days, if you will, utilities had a I mean, really a, they had a mission for their ratepayers of providing reliable, available, dependable, and cost effective, of course, abundant electrification because they enjoyed in exchange for that goodness that they provided they generally received a monopoly in a given state or territory to supply what they supplied as a monopolist supplier so the benefit of the bargain to ratepayers was the aforementioned reliability availability low cost and abundance what's what's begun to happen <clears throat> the last eight to ten years um the utilities have two two dynamics have occurred that really have hurt that model badly one is the presence of the EPA and the Department of the Interior in their kitchen, if you will, um, with relentless, relentless cost pressure and regulatory pressure in ever-increasing, absurdly increasing environmental standards that have been targeted specifically at shutting down first nuclear, which they were largely successful with, the Sierra Club prosecuting that agenda, uh, with the lack of building of it in this country. And then later, the Obama administration with an outright war waged through the EPA and various regulations that could not be met reasonably that had the goal and objective of shutting down as many coal plants in the country as they could. Um, the utilities used to fight that. <clears throat> the last five or six years, with the advent now of more activist shareholders and probably more acceptance that this kind of government isn't going away with this kind of effort, um, have more turned to deciding, hey, if you know, well, the problem for their business model in the past was these big power plants, coal, nuclear, gas, they lasted 40 years. The bad news was they lasted 40 years. Utilities can make a lot more money on asset churn, and that is dismantling a generation base and swapping it out for ever-changing wind and solar because in a regulated uh, generation market, you get to pass along the capital cost with a generally 10 to 11% or higher rate of return guaranteed by a public service commission 
So actually, it can be attractive to do that and somewhat abandon the mission to serve reliably and availably, cost-effectively. That's beginning to happen. It's happening across Duke's system. It's happening most notoriously across Nextera's system here in Florida, Southern Company, Entergy, most of the uh, XL specifically, large cap, uh, large capitalization utilities under shareholder pressure, and of course prior EPA and and uh, uh, Interior Department pressure are moving in a direction now of mo- making most of their new capacity investment in things that work only part time and solar and wind. So we've seen a transition away from the classic model of supporting ratepayers fully, which is is very very sad the trend. But, but also because the incentives are stacked by the federal government and tax base to make that very attractive um, through tax incentives that they enjoy. So we're seeing a kind of dismantling of the con- continuous duty energy system now increasingly by utility actions to embrace wind and solar, even though that cannot be the answer full time. That is just crazy. I mean, it. It appears that uh, those who know what's right and correct are just getting beaten down um, in these, uh, whether it's in the the utility environment or the public policy environment. Uh, You mentioned uh, nuclear, and this is what I've, I've, I've been scratching my head on. I mean, I'm, you and I are old enough. I, I remember when nuclear was supposed to be the power of the future and then things like Three Mile Island happened, you know, Jane Fonda's China Syndrome movie. movie. Um, you know, in, in I, I grew up in Washington State where we had the Washington Public Power Supply System that was going to make a chain of nuclear plants. And um, I think in many ways was was where environmental activists learned the, the, the sue and settle concept to get their way. Um, but now suddenly the Biden team and the blue team has, seems to have apparently discovered nuclear power or rediscovered nuclear power and nuclear power is, is now good again. So what, what's going on with nuclear? Well, it's, it's, it's clean. Uh, if you, and, and I, I don't, we won't spend too much time on it, but for anyone who's convinced that carbon is an emission to be controlled and is somehow life-threatening or damaging, I do not, by the way. I think many, many scientists do not believe that. But if you do believe that, <clears throat> nuclear power, of course, is devoid of carbon emissions. So, and, and, and really, the emissions that matter, there are some that matter. Nitrous oxide, sulfur, heavy particulate, heavy metals um, uh, do, do matter. It doesn't have that either. So it's a very clean, very clean in, in at scale can be very cost effective because the plants can be 50, 60 year life facilities. If, if they're upgraded, they really they really don't have a design life. They can go on forever with the key components being upgraded over time. Um, so you've got to you can have a cost benefit. Um, the unfortunately, the activists, the Sierra Club specifically, you mentioned Jane Fonda, cut their teeth in in the trying to dismantle that industry early in the 70s, fighting it viciously, and then used an incident like Three Mile Island, which which killed no one, injured no one. Reactor was brought back under control completely through being shut shut down in a very early process. The control system worked. Everything worked that was supposed to work, unlike in, in the case of Chernobyl, for sure, quite different. Uh, but again, the Green Movement seized on that. It's, oh, that could have been life-threatening. 
People could have died. Cows could have died. They didn't. Um, and, and just uh, embedded this uh, through the NRC, a regulatory environment that made it impossible to build these plants and get them permitted. So we went through, uh, looked like we were going to have a nuclear renaissance 2006, 2005. There were about 25 uh, plants being permitted on existing reservations like Diablo, Songs, Dominion, Surrey, and North Anna. These are big, big sites that have hundreds of acres for when they were designed originally more reactors and communities that were reactor friendly. Uh, so there were big plans in that time period to build a bunch more that were unfortunately gas dropping from 13, 14 bucks a decatherm down to two bucks by about 2008, stopped that progress. So we came out of that with two new reactors, one at Browns Ferry and the two finally being commercialized at Vogel. But no, this still today is 21% of our electricity supply in kilowatt hours is nuclear power. Large, large units tend to be 1,000 megawatts each, designed and built either by Westinghouse or, or GE. Um, it's great technology. We have kind of lost the skill base to build it. That needs to be uh, resurrected in this country. And of course, now we're moving towards looking at what are called SMRs, small modular, modular reactors, the good news with that, they're, you know, these range between 200 and 500 megawatts in size, a lot smaller than the big ones. The idea behind them is, has been, you can build them offsite, in a mainly in a factory, take most of the reactor and its support components to a site and minimize the construction effort, which is where the big overruns have tended to occur, and more focus more of the effort in the factory where you're building the smaller reactor and, and supporting systems. Um, the trouble to date has been the cost profile of what's been designed by the, the many companies working on these still look almost as expensive as a big thousand megawatt conventional advanced reactor designed by Siemens or GE. So the cost profiles haven't yet worked out. A lot more effort needs done on that. Um, the, the positive side, though, globally, we've got about 13 companies working on these, which is a very good thing. I mean, I came out of a day and time when in the Western Hemisphere, we had a grand total of two companies that worked on generating assets of size. They were GE and Westinghouse. Well, now, now we've got uh, 13 companies and you know, even Rolls-Royce and Gates has an enterprise. Um, uh, I think Allied Chemical, uh, Dow, actually Dow is working on one. So you've got a, a large variety of companies. Of course, GE is with Hitachi. Uh, 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 Westinghouse is working on a modular reactor, but you've got gl globally about 13 companies working on this technology, which is a good thing uh, to eventually get competition moving in it, hopefully without government support, be able to produce something at maybe 30, 40% less costly than a big thousand megawatt advanced nuclear plant. That, that was the goal of it. And two goals, one, skinny down the cost by modularizing building in a factory more control of processes in a factory than on site, but having, you know, device that could be more cost effective than big nuclear. So that, it's got good hope, but, but the conventional, conventional nuclear, we can de address regulatory overburden somewhat through the NRC, that the green movement through numerous Democrat administrations has migrated into that department, get, get some of that rationalized on the regulatory side. We, we can build large, advanced reactors of 1,000 megawatts plus successfully, get the skill base back, get some trained welders and machinists and construction companies back in the game. We've, we've got the technology. This is, a, this is absolutely a place to go. 
right. for cost-effective, large-scale, baseload, continuous-duty power. These plants run all the time. That's the benefit of them. They run 24 hours a day. They don't yeah. have the intermittency issue. Well, you know, when the Army used to have eight reactors, people forget about that. Uh, they actually had one at Fort Belvoir. Um, yeah. And, uh, I was still in office. It was about 2012. We were working on some contingency plans. And so even though I was in government, I actually worked uh, with a couple of power companies. Bechtel had the ticket for the old plant at Fort Belvoir. And the proposal was to modernize and turn that on as contingency power for the national capital region. And also the idea was to put them on uh, uh, time and experience with tug and barge operations is put them on the Crowley four by one barges, which are in magnificent barges, 400 feet long, hundred feet wide. You can do just about anything with those made by Gunderson in Portland, but uh, even put mobile nuke plants on that as national contingency power. And that white, white, white paper just kind of disappeared. But uh, I just saw a blurb that uh, Bechtel is, is pushing that and seems to have some favor with the administration. Uh, so I guess energy is somewhat back in vogue. Um uh, but like you said, the skill base is not there. I remember when we used to have miniature nuke plants on many of the universities and the one at University of Washington got bulldozed and buried over. But now I guess it's back in vogue. Of, of, of all the things that they have incentivized, pushed and are funding through various programs in, in the Biden uh, IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is actually an anti-emissions act. And he's admitted as much. The, the only uh, only thing that stands out that ought to be retained is, is the support for uh, small modular reactor design and development. Uh, I put the caveat on that, though, that the DOE's main effort on that, the NRC, should be how do we do lessons learned on cost and regulation to get cost out of these plants and make them commercially acceptable? Um Otherwise, putting money uh, on that makes that makes compelling sense. Nuclear has always been a great option, um, and I and I can't defend anything else in the IRA. I wouldn't even begin to, <laughs> but that that aspect of it, sure, that's that's worth um, up to a point supporting. Um, and the proliferation of companies chasing this is a good thing. Back in again in my day of two companies, that's that's not enough to create enough competition. There is a big a big field is developed across uh, the UK, Europe, and here and Japan. Companies getting into this um, mostly with their own money, not with government money, but taking advantage of some support. So there, I mean, there's good hope for it. And again, it was Admiral, Admiral Rickover. You know your wonderful military background. He remember he he nuclearized our carrier fleet, our whole submarine fleet. Um, you know you're talking moving moving vessels undersea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and decided, okay, if I can do the, the singular individual, the, I mean, the quality control demon of our generation, whoever lived, Admiral Rickover, he made that work, um, no accidents, ever an accident, decided, hey, okay, if I can do this, we can do this on land for conventional power and have basically close to free electricity. Um, and he, he pushed it and we were headed towards maybe having 40% of our national power supply be nuclear, but, uh, because of the Sierra club, the Jane Fonda people and the like, um, you know, drawing parallels to it with the atomic explosions in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, that the same thing would happen, you know, absolute lunacy. 
uh, frightens the, the, the American people into, um, uh, you know, let's stop this, which was absolutely a, a sin. Many of them have now admitted that later in life, admitted it was all gender driven. Their complaints about it had nothing to do with science. And many were made up, you know, so now they're back now liking it, which is, but so much damage has been done on the infrastructure to build these, the talent, the skill base, you know, uh, it, it's going to take a while to recover it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, uh, yeah, the blue team uh, can just stop on a dime and change position on a dime. And when someone has uh, no moral known starting point, you can do whatever you want to do. Uh, nuclear was good. Then it was bad. Now it's good. Uh, you know, yeah. m- most, most people would pull a muscle or get a hernia trying to keep up with the logic, but uh, yeah. you know, you you mentioned, you know, if I can, on that point, the, the, uh, Colonel Mills, a brainwash thing, the, uh, you know, we've had in the country about now eight consecutive weeks, pretty mild weather. Um, therefore, uh, the media has been very quiet. <laughs> the doom and gloom being painted back in July or three weeks, you know, they're very, very hot. In Texas, a little longer than that, but most of the rest of us, three weeks, four weeks maximum. So with the cool weather, what we got last week now is the uh, proliferation of stories about, well, well, 71% of the people in opinion polls believe that global warming is affecting life world, worldwide, damaging, killing people, and is a threat. They're, they're now regurgitating opinion polls that indicate how successful they've been at brainwashing over 30 years people on the CO2 ghost. So because the weather has cooled off and there's not really much to talk about with the weather. So they're now, they're now taking opinion polls of what people think of this and hanging their head on the opinion polls that yes, people think global warming might might kill them, so we need to do something about it. Uh, it's it's a little bit comical that you know we then migrate to needing to publish opinion polls for the media that has been pushing this false narrative on on CO two. It, it is a false narrative, and that's it, that's a bigger one to be addressed, but it's got to be addressed because the challenge we have geopolitically, 170 countries are way not on board with this at all. And they're not going to be. They, they know better. They know what they need to develop their economies, their societies to defend themselves. They need energy. They need it in abundance. And a lot of it's going to be fossil fueled, independent of any elite countries in Western Europe or here in North America that think that the opposite. It's just, you know, it, it's we're, we're kind of on our own on this with about 12 other countries. It, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a failed mission and it's a lonely mission because it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, that that's it for this segment. It sounds like we're we're headed back towards some nuclear. That's that's great. So uh, everyone, thank you for uh, this is Colonel Rhett John and uh, with my uh, my guest Dave Walsh on the National Security Hour. America out news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity.
This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Welcome back, everybody, uh, to America Out Loud News Network, the National Security Hour. This is Colonel Rhett John, and uh, uh, my wonderful uh, guest is uh, Dave Walsh, uh, who is the, the president of Mitsubishi uh, P- uh, Power for North American Operations, who just, uh, he is your go-to man on uh, energy matters. Uh, we've talked about the destruction wrought by the by the Biden team. We've talked about uh, uh, the current state of affairs of nuclear and uh, and how nuclear seems to be in favor and, uh, in a bipartisan fashion. But uh, what we want to cover in this segment is what does a what does a mega energy policy look like and. Ladies and gentlemen, when I say mega, I think you know what I'm talking about. Making America great again policy, not making America weak again, not destroying America, not not ideologically harebrained, but making America great again. So, Dave, what is a what is a robust mega energy policy look like? Well, it's it's kind of back to the past uh, pillars of uh, thinking about a national energy strategy for any any developed country have been based on, and especially this one in the fifties and the sixties when this was all thought through, uh, self dependence to the degree possible on fuel inputs, being whether coal, uranium, gas, oil, that they be available within the country, creates a bulletproofness around making that system secure. B the abundance of energy for people, for industry, and the national defense, all three. When you've got abundant energy, you can have a thriving economy, you can have thriving industry and exports, and you can have a strong military. And you can manufacture the equipment needed to have a strong military when you have abundance and the reliability of it. Um, So, and then finally, the self-sufficiency to the degree possible of making the key equipment components and then again, extracting the resources, be it uranium, yellow cake, coal, oil and gas, uh, or you know, move in a direction of some use of uh, solar, having lithium for batteries and thin film PV made here uh, to be to be bulletproof. Those were the hallmarks of a robust energy supply. And it's, it, it is all of the above, but, but also based on economics, all of the above based on their own economics and not based on government subsidies. Um, so, you know, instead of looking at, at, at continuing to subsidize um, solar, wind, uh, biomass, which, oh, by the way, that's burning wood, incredibly dirty. We subsidize that because it's argued to be green. 
and subsidizing things of that nature uh, is, and, and even uh, ethanol is to remove those kinds of subsidies, create a levelized playing field for gas, oil, coal, nuclear uh, to compete effectively, uh, favorably with with wind and solar that are actually very old technologies. They're 50, 60 year old technologies that have been applied at scale for a long time that are ready to stand up on their own feet for the certain niche that they can support. But the, you know, in perpetuity, uh, subsidizing certain things based on some notion of cleanness doesn't make a lot of sense, especially once they're, if you will, after 50 years of development up to speed, which probably is about where they're going to get based on the limitations of nature. But I also take with that even uh, even things like ethanol. No, no need, no need for that of being subsidized. Um, as we don't subsidize things we're blessed with: natural gas, coal, nuclear, uranium, yellow cake uh, have not been subsidized. The building power plants of that nature have not. All due respect to arguments that they have been, they have not been subsidized. Um, energy resources to be in all of the above abundant strategy should all share equity or equality in not being uh, uh, favored one over the other based on tax policy um, to promote the goodness of abundance, which is a hallmark of a, of a sound energy strategy. But again, self-sufficiency, not being dependent on importation, and we're blessed the shell gas revolution put us in a tremendous position of being a net exporter of oil and gas products for the first time in 25 years uh, since the early 70s. Um, by the way, to, at this point, 360 billion of our exported product from the U.S. You know, we, we export two trillion a year of goods and services. Uh, we import three trillion. So the balance of trade is close to negative one trillion. Um, of the 2.0 trillion that we export, 386 billion is oil and gas. It's a huge, huge benefit to the balance of trade. The fact that one, we're self-sufficient, and the fact that also it's a net export uh, topic that adds hugely to ameliorating our balance of trade deficit, therefore supporting the currency in the country. It's a massively important and massively important to our ability to be influential geopolitically globally, whether it's in the Middle East, in Asia, with Japan, or elsewhere. Um, so the need to produce... Uh, you know, again, globally, fossil fuels are 98% of energy used globally in this country, about 96%, 5.5% of energy inputs in this country are wind, solar, and battery storage. 94.5% are other largely oil, gas, coal, nuclear. Um, at, at the heart of that, we, we have got to get back to abundant, unrestricted production of the, the critical inputs that, that make a dense, efficient energy. And they, they are coal. We need to retain coal plants for their base load duty. We're in desperate condition of needing more power plants now that run 24 hours a day. We have closed so many across the country that now MISO, PJM, in addition to ERCOT and KISO, California, for a long time now, openly acknowledging having a severe lack of base load, continuous duty power plants things we took for granted in the 70s and 80s, having that the Carter, first the uh, Clinton administration, then in, in vigorous portion fashion, the, the uh, Obama administration began to want to shut down programmatically our fossil fuel power plants. Those have to be kept running because they run all of the time. So that's those are kind of the, the hallmarks. It's all of the above 
uh, based on economics, not based on subsidies, uh, heavy concentration of the resources that we have, not things that we would import. And heaven forbid getting close to importing any oil or gas because we are afraid of our own shadow in, in resource extraction in this country. That, that, that's a disaster. And we've seen the impacts of that disaster visited recently on Germany and England in the last two years with the Ukraine crisis. Their lack of self-production of oil and gas that they have and the lack of using coal that they have um, has visited enormous dependence uh, weakness that they've had hiding behind dependence on Russian supplied energy. Mm. So uh, mm. self-dependence also a key, a key hallmark of a, a perfected energy strategy. And even, you know, even leveraging off of the fact that in the, in his second term, late in his second term, Obama himself, on several occasions, took credit for the fracking boom. It was such an obvious benefit to the country, making us a net exporter of oil and gas again, prices being way, way down, the flow-on effects to employment and industry being so fantastic, even he was taking credit for it, to now have us move in a direction of consciously trying to destroy all that. And communicate to OPEC Plus that, by the way, we're now we're, we're now on the bench. We're not really interested in producing this stuff anymore. That we're going to be a nominal buyer of it. That they're reacting appropriately to someone who's claiming they're not in the game. They're forming their own club, now called the BRICS, the BRICS Group, sponsored by China, mm-hmm. uh, which is an, an alignment of nations with China, a, a massive user of oil and gas and coal. Uh, appropriately, by the way, for them, for their benefit. They're doing exactly the right thing for their benefit with their dependence on coal, their dependence on uh, now becoming uh, even the lithium and the thin film PV. They use a little bit of that to demonstrate for their export value, but their their energy systems entirely localized in, in country. Um, and that's, that was a hallmark of most of the developed world for a very long time. Even major generation equipment used to be made in the developed countries, Austria, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, England, Sweden, the U.S., Japan, Russia, China made their own, made their own generating equipment because it's essential to an energy supply. Um, that, that's, you know, so we're, it's always been a given of being able to defend yourself and be self-sufficient is having the resources, the components and the extraction of coal, gas, and oil, whatever, and building hydro plants, if you have that kind of capacity, such as Canada's blessed with, uh, uh, to maintain your own domestic energy supplies and not be dependent on others. That's been a hallmark of the developed West for a very long time that we're, we're consciously now running away from. It's very, very sad. I mean, the opposite of dependent, dependence does not work. It does not work. Look at the model now of Germany, of England, uh, dependence on others, especially unstable others, is a disaster of things that you actually have in abundance, which the, the UK is a classic case, full of oil and gas resources to this day in the North Sea, full of coal resources, have abandoned all the above for dependence on others. And the economy is in tatters. Germany's headed the same place. So these are not models for us to follow. The model President Trump had us on was the, the right one, was working, and uh uh, the, the carryover of that is is getting us through to this day. We're still, you know, we're a 14 million barrel a day oil oil producer, which is a, it's a blessing. But that's the tailwinds of the Trump administration that were there. But we're still there. 
Well, 14 million. What, what, what's the rough consumption, isn't it? I thought the consumption was more like about 10 million. So are we, are we, no, we're, we're about it. We, we do import uh, for, we import um, 4% or so of product that we don't make and refine. We import more diesel. There's some lower grades of fuel oil we import, but net in gross dollars, we're still way in that exporter. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, so, but but that's all because of the the boom that occurred in the four years preceding this administration. You know, all the actions in this, all of the administration strategy on killing energy in this country is his strategy has been weaponized justice, the DOE, the Interior Department, Deb Holland, even the DOE itself weaponized the DOE, which was formed even by Carter about the abundance of energy. Even Carter, a nuclear engineer, say something positive about him, help form with the Republican associate Schlesinger, the DOE, based on the abundance of all the above, coal, gas, nuclear, you know, some some renewables, of course. Um, these guys have completely abandoned that, abandoned that for a, a policy, policies of scarcity, which is, uh, it's sinful. It's sinful. And, and, you know, I mean, he was literally running to Iran only a year and a half ago looking for an oil deal. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the victory of ideology of the Obama Biden team, and I've spent time at the White House in both the end of Bush, beginning of Obama, and spend a lot of time with Obama uh, politicals. It's just this victory of ideology. Facts are irrelevant. It's all about the victory of we're going to will this utopia into existence, despite no engineering basis, no no scientific basis, and they will destroy uh, the country. But you you mentioned uh, in the in the first segment about the preponderance of lawyers, and boy, isn't that the truth? That is the that is really um, I saw that over and over and over again. Uh, lawyers, lawyers, lawyers. So well, that's what, yeah. What, what, what about what is this? Uh, exporting of gas uh and that's where uh you know we have the big lng ships where is where is that headed and how is that doing well it's booming um you know we've got now five major lng export terminals they cost two to three billion each to build but by the private sector uh the doe uh, fortunately even even this administration has not gotten in the way of uh this is where money can breed some corruptness, if you will, in the system uh, has not gotten in the way of allowing more of these to be permitted. We're in about five years. We're going to export three times the amount of LNG we do now, five to six years from now, with the, the plants being built, the additional terminals being built. We're now like uh, 11 billion uh, BTU per day exporting. We'll be at something like 30 billion in six years, which will triple the amount of natural gas exports. You know, that's that's a good thing. I mean, being globally, we're the number one player globally now ahead of Australia and Qatar in exporting natural gas. Um, the, you know, the, the, the thing that has to be balanced, we have to figure out how to balance how to make that same resource completely accessible and affordable for our own people at the same time. This can be figured out. I mean, one of the big impediments to that has been the blockage of a lot of the internal country pipelines, Mountain Valley Pipeline, mm-hmm. the pipeline from Western Virginia to the to Petersburg, uh, Norfolk area that was stopped, Duke and Dominion had invested in. There was a Michigan Pipeline. 
uh, all these natural gas pipelines domestically that have to do with end users, not LNG export being blocked. That's a huge problem. This The, the abundance of, of the natural gas coming from fracking has to be shared as well with our citizens. We, we've got to figure that out. Um, now, yeah, I, I don't quite have the the soup the recipe for how to do that without sounding like a socialist, which I'm not, but that, that we, we need a balance and that is a heavy, heavy domestic use and, and promotion of it along with heavy exportation. We're, we're blessed with enough of it to do both. Believe me, more than enough of it to do both. Um, so that's the, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a conundrum with over exportation at the expense of having any more domestic pipelines can mean very, very high prices domestically, which, you know, we, we, we want to protect that to some degree. Um, right. And, you know, it goes along with figuring out how to um, avoid trading with OPEC plus in a way to, I mean, China has very successfully dealt with them very rapidly. Uh, they go to Iran. This is not, this is not proven to be good for us nor Israel lately, but, a uh, year and a half ago, with here, here, guys, we're going to take we'll take two million barrels a day from you. It's going to be Brent crude minus forty percent. You got what's the deal? And they agree. I mean, it, in one fell swoop, Iraq and Iran have badly undercut OPEC with uh, making those kinds of deals with uh, China. Um, we, it's showing we, we can put OPEC out of its misery very rapidly if we choose to. We need mm-hmm. to do that. We mm-hmm. need to figure out how to do that. And it's aligning with Canada the UK, get them back in the game, Norway, a great producer, and form an alliance of countries that don't trade with them. I mean, hmm. what they're doing is illegal. It's been illegal since 1972 when it was founded. It's a, it's a in restraint of trade, corrupt uh, cartel. We shouldn't trade with them. Uh, and we shouldn't, you know, meaning we shouldn't let Exxon and Chevron trade with them. Uh, we need to be more um, polarized with nations who are like-minded, but, but who are willing to produce oil and gas. That we're running out of a little bit. Yeah, well, thank you, Dave. Dave, we're hitting the end of the segment here, but this has just been absolutely wonderful. And uh, and everyone, uh, yeah, this is the National Security Hour, but a, a key foundation of national security is energy policy. And uh, and uh, Dave uh, Walsh has been my guest, uh, who's president of uh, Mitsubishi Power Systems North America, good uh, a good friend, colleague uh, from uh, several places. Uh, but I just thought it would be really good to have him on and talk about these topics. So, Dave, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate it. Well, Colonel Mills, thank you. Appreciate you having me. Thank you, everyone. This is Colonel Rhett John on the National Security Hour for America News Out Loud.